Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 91. We've got a lot to go over today. We have the Brewers back on the field and a big night. CC Sabathia is back in Milwaukee tonight. We'll have a discussion about him, his time in Milwaukee. Should his jersey be retired? Is that insane? We'll break that down. Ben Sheets in town tomorrow. Big series with Josh Hader and the Padres in town for the first place Brewers. We will talk about some Giannis drama. I'm sure you saw it if you follow any of the Wisconsin sports teams on Twitter. It was all over Twitter. New York Times article talking about potentially leaving in a few years. I can't believe we're already back to this conversation. Feels like just yesterday he signed the extension. We will discuss that. And getting set for the final preseason game of the year tomorrow, Saturday afternoon at Lambeau, we will have in our countdown leading up to opening weekend, number five, top five, Packer Bear games, in my opinion, in my lifetime, number five with highlights from 1995 coming up. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes. The Brewers yes. win. Yes. Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown. Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to He looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, I hope everybody's having a good one out there. Thank you for downloading. Rate if you can. A few more ratings came in on Spotify I saw after last week's discussion. It's anything. Just click on any amount of stars. It helps. Well, we appreciate you downloading it. Hope you're getting set for a great weekend. We're actually going. My wife and I are going to the Lumineers on Saturday. The last time we went to see Lumineers, we both like them, and it's a birthday gift I got my wife back in March to go to this show at the Amphitheater in Milwaukee this Saturday. But we both had to laugh because the last time we went to see the Lumineers was on March 11th, the year 2020. Most people regard that date as the time the earth stood still, the time things got really super serious in the COVID world. Because before that date, you could kind of feel things bubbling under the surface. There was that Jurassic Park if you're sitting in the Jeep and the water starts trembling. A little bit of that was going on. I don't know that any of us thought what was eventually going to happen for that year or two years was what was going to happen. Maybe it would get a little more serious, but it didn't feel like it was going to get far beyond what it was in that moment. And we had tickets at Fiserv Forum to go see the Lumineers. And we sat down in our seats and listened to the first two acts of the night. And, you know, if you go to a concert, there's always a break in between every act. There was a break after the second act before the Lumineers took the stage. I did what almost anybody does during that time instead of conversing with people around me or my wife. We both got our phones out instantly and started going through Twitter just to see what's been going on or responding to text messages, checking email, things like that. I hopped on Twitter, and the first thing I saw was that the NBA was postponing their year. 
This was in the middle of, or at the end of, what was looking like it could be a 70-win Milwaukee Bucks regular season. They were just in fuego. That was coming off of the year in 2019 where they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals. That regular season felt like they were ready to take the next step forward. We were thinking championship in Milwaukee, 70-win team maybe, upper 60s in terms of win total. I gasped. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. That was the night that Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz Center at the time tested positive for COVID. They delayed the start of whatever game, wherever Utah was playing that night, they delayed the start of that game, and then they canceled it and told everybody to leave. Hours later, they hit pause on the season. I did think to myself, just from the sports perspective of, of course, of course, as a Bucks fan, of course, they finally look like they have a championship caliber team. They're on pace to be historically great in the regular season. We're talking about throwing them in a category with the 86 Celtics or the 96 Bulls in terms of win total, 68, 69, 70 total wins, and a, a pandemic, a virus is what's going to stop them. Everybody's healthy, but now we've got this virus. That, though, was the first moment of, oh, boy, an hour later or half an hour later. Well, it must have been less than that. It was still before the Lumineers hit the stage. Baseball postponed the start of their year. As soon as the NBA did what they did, it was as if it was the first domino. And then baseball said, well, we're going to delay spring training. They pushed that back. Then you couldn't do international flights. About five minutes later, international flights have been canceled. Things started unraveling so quickly, you could feel the murmur of the crowd and the information starting to spread like the coronavirus that things were going sideways. You could just feel it. There was an energy in the crowd. I thought with how quickly things were moving, and I wonder if there was ever a discussion of this backstage. We'll probably never find out. I thought that there was a real chance that somebody was going to come on stage and tell us all to go home. I was going to say, we're not going to go on stage. Lumineers are not going to perform tonight. We'll work out refunds, whatever. This is the news, and we ask that you all get home safely. I really thought I thought it was a coin flip. I thought it was a real 50-50 shot, the way things were moving and how fast they were moving. They were going to tell everybody to go home. I also remember after that news started to filter in, I had to go to the bathroom. I just had to go. I went up to the bathroom, and it was such an odd bizarre moment of staring at people and, and this person washed their hands or why didn't that person walk out? You shouldn't use soap. Did you use soap when you washed your hands? You got a little leery of being close to people and you were monitoring what other people were doing in terms of hygiene and cleanliness a little closer in that moment. It was so peculiar. Lumineers did take the stage and put on a great show Everybody went home and then everything stopped the next day. Basically everything stopped the following day. When I bought the tickets for her for her birthday for that, I thought, God, the last time we saw the Lumineers, hopefully things go better this time. They couldn't possibly go worse, right? They couldn't possibly go worse, I don't think. We'll be seeing them tomorrow at the amphitheater down in Milwaukee. Okay, speaking of Milwaukee, let's talk about the Brewers. They get two great wins against the Twins. Five straight wins against first-place teams. Yes, I understand the Twins are a different caliber of first-place team than the Rangers or the Dodgers before them. It's still a first-place team. You still took care of business. They get the afternoon win on Wednesday. What a debacle at AmFan Field for how hot it was. Heat index values of 115-120, afternoon game. And then, of course, of course, the game goes three and a half hours. Goes to extra innings, and people are sitting there for 3.30, 3.45. I think it was a three-hour and 40-minute game. A lot of runs, a lot of walks. They get down 7-6 to six in extra innings on a swinging bunt. And you kind of thought, ugh, you're going to lose like that. It was with two outs, too. Ellis Peguero on the hill. A swinging bunt. He couldn't field it. Everybody's hands were sweaty. Devin was struggling with that. Nobody could get a good grip on the baseball. 
Piguero couldn't field it. I don't know that he throws him out anyway and a run scores. Twins take a 7-6 lead. But the Brewers rally. Willie Adamas has been hot, man. We talked about it on the last podcast what a difference that makes. If you're going to make him be the third, fourth, or fifth guy in that lineup, and he's going two for four, three for five. He's hitting home runs. He had another home run against the Twins in that two-game set. It's such a difference to have an impact batter, to have a bat doing anything in the middle of that order and not going over four with three strikeouts every game. He instantly hits a, an RBI single up the middle to tie the game. It ends up being a runner on third, two down, and Bryce Terang, man, just put the ball in play. Just put it in play. He got on top of a high outside pitch, chopped it down the third baseline. Terang is quick. One of those hits where as soon as you saw how slow it was going to third base, you thought, oh, come on, bust it down the line. Hit the X button. Hit the turbo button. He did, and he beat it out, and the Brewers got an 8-7 to win and picked up Corbin Burns, who had a bad start. He has been so good since the All-Star break. He had the rough-ish start in Chicago. Another hot weather game. I was there for that one. I wonder if 90-degree temperatures. Honestly, that game in Chicago was about the same. It was about 90. Not as bad heat index, but it was about upper 80s, low 90s. Very sweaty night in Chicago, and it was a sweaty day in Milwaukee on Wednesday. Offense, though, picks up Corbin Burns, and the Brewers get the win. I did have to chuckle, too, just talking about the hot weather. They had a camera shot. I wasn't quick enough to get my phone out and take a picture of it, and I was watching on the Bally Sports app, which is a miracle in and of itself. If you use the Bally Sports app to consume your Brewer coverage, just the fact that I was even able to watch the game is a minor miracle. It's maybe the worst app ever invented. And if you're going to be bad, you may as well be the worst. That's what I always say. B93. But I was not quick enough on the draw, and I didn't want to hit rewind. I knew that would disrupt the app, and I think a black hole would start if I tried to click rewind in the middle of a live broadcast on the Bally Sports app. They had, though, in the 10th inning, so this was late in the game. Or maybe it was the 9th inning. It might have been when Devin was on. They they did a crowd shot, and this guy, about three or four rows behind home plate, was in a gray T-shirt, Bold move, Cotton. That's a bold strategy to go on a 100-degree day with a heat index of 120 inside AmFam Field, and you're sporting gray. Even if you don't sweat normally, (laughs) you just – a gray T-shirt? What are we doing? And he had sweat. I'm not kidding. From his neck, he had a sweat line down to his nipples just about, and he looked absolutely miserable. (laughs) He had this look on his face. Of sheer misery of how hot it was, and he knows he's sweating, and he knows everybody can see he's sweating. And the broadcast, I think, was chuckling, too. They had a weird, awkward five-second pause. I think you could kind of hear Levering chuckle a little bit. How could you not? It was such a funny shot, and the camera went out of its way to find him, or somebody saw him, and then they got the camera shot of him. They left him on screen for about 10 seconds. You just know they hit the cough button, and they were dying in, in the background behind the scenes. They end up getting that win, though. They get the two-game sweep of the Twins, which I'm pretty sure returns the favor of getting swept at Target Field over two games earlier in the year. Three straight against first place Texas on the road. Two against first place Minnesota at home. Five-game winning streak. Season best, 13 games over 500. They are 70-57. and 57. Cubs did win. This is a Friday podcast. Cubs did win yesterday. Their first to four in Pittsburgh. Had to go to extras. Got the win, though. Now they're even in terms of total games played, which if you have a weak mind like I do, weak brain, the brain scramblies for my what we do in the shadows fans. I always find it tough when there's a difference in the total games played. It always looks off to me in the standings. Now everything's perfect. Everything looks round. Everything looks normal. Brewers have a three-game lead on the Cubs, and they are even in the amount of games they've played. The Reds have actually played two more games than both the Brewers and the Cubs. They lost in L.A. Or no, they lost in Arizona last night. They swept L.A. in a doubleheader the day before. They are four games back as we get set to enter play tonight. The San Diego Padres are in town for the best of three or for a three-game set. Best of three. 
getting set, getting set for Wild Card Weekend. Well, if you're a Padre fan, they're five or six games out. One of the colossal disappointing teams of the year would be either the Padres or the Mets, given the discrepancy between where they are in the standings and the amount of money they paid for their team. Could you imagine, as a Brewer fan, imagine the Brewers have Fernando Tatis and Juan Soto and three or four just once-in-a-lifetime talents. Blake Snell leads the National League in ERA, and you've got Josh Hader having an historically good year as their closer. And they're sub-500? How does that happen? How? Imagine investing that much money for that little return. If you're a Padres fan, you could probably talk yourself into still being in the wild card race about five games back with, what, six or seven weeks left to play? Because they are a talented team, their record belies how good the talent is on the team. This is going to be a tough series. This is a good team, despite the record not being good. One of those kind of deals. Where if you're a casual baseball fan, these kind of series, depending on how they go, they separate who watches baseball and who just looks at records. Because if the Brewers lose two out of three, you're going to have a casual fan say, oh, they lost to a team that's five games under 500, a team that's in fourth place? Gross. Whereas if they lose two out of three in this series and you watch baseball and you know the type of talent that San Diego possesses, you say their record does not indicate what the talent level is on that team. And they could beat anybody. They could beat anybody in a best of three or a best of five, given the talent level. They're just trying to get in. The subplot of the series tonight and tomorrow are going to be the return of two pitchers from the 2008 season. One for longer than that, but one just for the 2008 season. C.C. Sabathia is back in Milwaukee. Finally, the C.C. has come back. He'll be back to throw out the first pitch, ceremonial first pitch tonight. I imagine he is going to get a long and loud standing ovation, which he deserves. In honor of his return, the Brewers posted this on their official Twitter page. He was talking about the 2008 season. Brewers get him just before the trade deadline. And then from that moment until the end of the year, especially the last two weeks, he carried the team on his back. He basically single-handedly ended the 26-year playoff drought. It was interesting to hear him talk about that run, though, in this context where he said, I knew I was going to win those you know, games. There's never a time in, in, in your career where you feel like, where you know you're going to win the games. Like, I knew I was going to win those games. Love there, it. You know, it, like, <laughs> never a time in my career where I knew I was going to go out and win a baseball game. There's, I never felt like that. So I'm like, I want to pitch as many days as possible. Like, I'm healthy. I feel great. Like, we need this. Our team is, you know, on the run. We're having fun. It was a great group of guys. And, um, you know, I was, I just, I felt obligated and and to, and compelled to do it. The only thing I never got tired, I just got mentally, it was exhausting because, you know, you wake up and every two days it's like your day to pitch. You know what I mean? So <laughs> going through the routine of like my pitch day got a little exhausting, but physically I felt great. Just an unbelievable work by him that entire run it's almost like a Paul Bunyan tall tale it really is when we think back you keep on shortening the length in between starts and expanding how many innings he pitched and how many wins he got there's a real tall taleness to it because we had never seen anything like that and I don't think you'll ever see anything like that again a star pitcher a Cy Young caliber pitcher in his contract year who's on the verge in the prime of his career on the verge of a massive payday he gets traded to a team that has not been to the playoffs in 26 years, and they ask of him a Herculean effort, an effort that could have hurt him, that could have hurt his shoulder, hurt his elbow. Would any of us have been shocked at the end of that year if he had to go on the IL or the DL at the time 
with shoulder soreness or elbow fatigue or whatever it would have ended up being because of how often they pitched. He had another podcast I listened to a few years ago where somebody asked him, what did your agent think of all this? Because it does sound like CeCe just said, look, I'm doing this. It's my life. It's my life. <laughs> a little Bon Jovi for you. I'm doing it. And this is just what we're going to do. And the person on the podcast said, well, what did your agent think of that? And he said, not happy. (laughs) Not happy because he's knocking on the door of whatever he got from the Yankees that offseason, $150, $200 million. And if you go out there and shred your shoulder trying to carry the Brewers to the postseason, it costs you years or millions on your deal. What a risk it was. But he laid it all on the line. I'll never forget. If you didn't live through it, and I know we're at a point now where this is 15 years ago. I was talking about this on the air on the B93 Morning Show, too. There's a whole group of Brewer fans now that are 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, 20 years old that don't have a memory of the 2008 Brewers breaking that playoff drought and what CC did. It was like nothing I've ever seen before or nothing I've ever seen since. And we've seen success since. More success. They make the NLCS in 2011. They trade to acquire Grinky that year. They get to game seven of the NLCS in 2018. They had been in the playoffs, what, four or five years in a row. We've seen a lot of success since then. What we have not seen is one person literally putting the team on his back and having that kind of stature every time he took the field. It was like a rock star. It would be like if Jimi Hendrix was doing a set. He was the house band. He was the house star-spangled banner at Ampam Field for three straight months. And every time you went to Miller Park, Jimi Hendrix was doing the national anthem that night. That was the feeling when CC, when it was his day to pitch, especially if it was at home. I don't know how many home games. He made 17 starts. 10 or 11 were at home probably. I want to say I went to nine of them. It was one of those things where you would just get tickets just to go see him. I'll never forget there was an afternoon game, a Wednesday afternoon. I was doing the morning show on B93. And, you know, typically you're up pretty early, three or four o'clock in the morning, and you work till noon or one, and then a little afternoon nap in there. You know, if you're on that kind of a radio schedule, you're almost on a hybrid third, first shift schedule. You're not fully third shift where you're sleeping it all day during the day. You're getting your six or seven hours or five hours during the day. You get a couple of hours during the day, and you get four or five hours at night. That's healthy, right? That'll, I'm sure, pay dividends on my, <laughs> on my health care later in my life. I'll worry about that later. We'll, like credit card debt. We'll push that down the road. We'll worry about that later. But that's what it was. And that typically would have been a time where I would just go home and take a nap and you're gassed at noon or one. I thought, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. We all knew. We thought the Brewers might give him some kind of contract offer. And it was clear he loved Milwaukee. And if they had the money, he would have stayed. But we were never going to have that. It's like Prince in 2011. Would it have been great? Sure. But we knew we were never going to have him back. And that was what was happening during that time where I would sit in the studio and think, yeah, normally I'd be home taking a nap, but how many times do you get a chance to watch this guy pitch the way he's pitching right now? Buy a ticket on Stub Up for 20 bucks, go and sit by myself in the 400 level, second to last row, just to see him pitch. He was a rock star every time he was on the mound. And that only escalated. You add in then that August hitter, no hitter, where in the first inning in Pittsburgh, he muffed that ground ball, which should have been an error on CC, which would have facilitated a no-hitter. To his credit, in that same podcast where he was talking about how his agent felt about him going out there all the time, they asked him about that too and said, do you have any regrets? Not that he could change anything, but do you have any thoughts about that being a no-hitter? And he said what I think a lot of pitchers would say. He said, look, that was early in the game, so it just never registered for him. Because it was a hit on the board in the first inning, that takes that out of it. If you're a pitcher, you're not thinking about it because it was gone so early. And he admitted, too, you never know how that game goes. If they call that an error, 
Is he making the same pitches? Is everything happening the exact same way for the entirety of the rest of that game? He said probably not. Would it have been great? Sure. And Brewers fans who are starved for a no-hitter, we got the combined no-no. I don't know. It's nice. That was fun. We all had a good time with that. You still want one, though, from one guy to put next to the Juan Nieves no-hitter. And we thought we had one that day. I remember Ned Yost went off in the post-game press conference about how they robbed him of a no-hitter. As as vocal and as angry as I've seen Ned Yost. And he would be a lot angrier two or three weeks later when the team couldn't win a game and he got fired. And they hired or they brought in or moved over Dale Swain with 12 games left that year. And he would just be on the mound then. That last two weeks, it felt like every other day he was on the mound and never seemed to fatigue. At no point did he seem to weaken. At no point did he give up any ground, really. In 17 starts, he pitched 130 innings and only gave up 24 runs. That's preposterous. We'll never see anything like that again. He went 11-2, and not that win-loss record matters that much anymore. He went 11-2, had an ERA of 1.65. He had a war of almost five, and he only played half the year in Milwaukee. If he does that the entirety of the year, you're looking at 11-12 war. You might be looking at historically one of the greatest pitching seasons of all time. Now, could he have done that the whole year? I don't know. It's just going to be so much fun to see him at AmFam Field and get that standing O that he rightly deserves. I'll never forget, too, that last game of the year. My wife and I went. We had a 20-pack that year. We were there for the final game against the Cubs, and it was a rarity where almost everybody was in Miller Park before first pitch. You think of tailgate cuts in Milwaukee and how people sit out in that parking lot until the second, third, fourth inning saunter in, even for sellout days, even for bobblehead days, even for big games. I don't think I've ever been inside AmFam Field or Miller Park before or since where everybody's ass was in their seats before first pitch, way before first pitch, because CC. When he got done warming up in the bullpen, got a standing ovation as he was walking from the bullpen warm-up to the dugout, which almost most of the time no one's even there for. That was the attitude that day. That's how desperate we were to see them finally break this threshold and get into the playoffs. And they win that game. Here's the clip. We'll play the clip right now. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. A complete game, and the Brewers beat the Cubs three to one. Raise a glass, Milwaukee. What a game! My goodness. I'll forever love Rock in that clip. I love. B.A. earlier in the game when Braun hits the home run and his voice cracks, which I know he probably hates as a broadcaster. It just added to it and made it feel better or more special. And Rock, who doesn't exclaim like Larry McCarron does, like he doesn't do that a ton. For him to do that in that moment also emphasized how big that moment was, and it spoke for all of us. It spoke for every Brewer fan about what we were feeling about finally getting to see this team in the postseason. In that moment, though, we thought we were going to a play-in game. We thought New York would beat the Marlins, who were a bad team that year, and we would be in a one-game playoff just to determine the wild card. They weren't in yet. Then we all watched in the Jumbotron. They put the game on, that Mets-Marlins game, and the, I forget what Mets player it was, it looked like they had hit a game-tying homer at the end of it. It was caught at the warning track, and that was it, and the party was on. The confetti and the streamers, I was tearing up just because, my God, they're actually in the playoffs. It didn't go well in the playoffs. CC, it felt, finally ran out of gas. He gave up that grand slam in game one in Philadelphia, and they never were really in that series. They got the one win with Dave Bush on the mound. I was there for that one, too. It's to see them break that drought, too, and finally get a playoff win. CC, though, will get a much-deserved standing O tonight. It's going to be a very warm welcome. 
I have seen some conversation. We mentioned this in the episode teaser. Would you retire his number, or is that being too dramatic? Would you retire number 52? They only have so many jerseys retired. I think at some point they have to retire Ryan Braun's, right? Even with all the -the off-the-field stuff and the lying and whatever he was on, whether it was HGH or whatever, I'm fairly convinced whatever Ryan Braun was on was to make him or help him overcome injuries. Not saying that's right. I don't think it's fair, though, to lump Ryan Braun into a steroid category. When we talk about the steroid era and Barry Bonds looking like Megamind out there and the popcorn muscles on Mark McGuire, Braun, he wasn't on that kind of stuff. The fact, though, that he was on it during his MVP year and then lied about it, remember the whole thing at spring training, the chain of command with the urine test and all of that, that's what taints his legacy. At some point, though, you've got to retire number eight. He's the second greatest brewer of all time. I had some people going nuts on me in the text line about that take today. We were talking a little bit about retired numbers of the Brewers, and I was talking about Ryan Braun's, his number eight having to get retired at some point, and I said he's the second best Brewer of all time. There was a lot of pushback on the text line about Paul Molitor. When you think of Brewers historically, you do know that Robin Yount's forever and always going to be number one. It would be very hard for anybody to supplant him at number one. Maybe if Yelly gets back to full MVP Yelly and they win a World Series. Even then, he might not get past Robin. Robin's mostly 1A, and Molly, for the most part, is looked at as 1B. If you look at the numbers, though, and the clutch hitting, Ryan Braun, if you take all the other BS aside, you take all the lying and the press conferences and the failed Ryan Braun, Aaron Rodgers, lakefront or waterfront, riverfront restaurant, and all that kind of stuff that was going on at that time, take all of that away, and you just look at the raw numbers and what they did for the team in terms of hits, in terms of power, in terms of clutch hitting and coming through, Braun is the second best brewer of all time. The second best. End of story. At some point, they'll have to retire his number. Would they retire CeCe's, though, just because of what he did and the Herculean effort it took to get them in the playoffs that year and the sacrifices that he had to make and the potential sacrifice he would have made had he got hurt? It maybe feels a little over the top. Here's what I said on the air. If they announced that, if they just said tonight, hey, we're going to retire CeCe Sabathia's 52, what would the reaction be? Would anybody say boo? You know what I mean? Would anybody say, oh, that's crazy? You might think, okay, that's a little much for a guy that only played half a season or a little more than half a year or only made 17 starts in a Brewer jersey. I don't think anybody says boo, though. I don't know that anybody's upset about it. Is it. Would it be that big of a deal to see his number up there? I think it would warm my heart to see, to look up in the rafters above the Jumbotron at Ampham Field and to see the name Sabathia in 52 because it would conjure up memories of that unbelievable run of what he did to get them in the playoffs that year. I don't think anybody says boo. If you retired it, they should retire. You know what? They should. Have a take, John. Have a take and stick to it. They need to retire CC's 52, and they need to retire bronze number eight at some point in the next five-ish years. Both of those numbers need to be up there. They will take on the Padres starting tonight. It is a 7-10 first pitch. Let me just get the schedule up quick here, which, of course, I didn't have ready to go. Three against San Diego, and then we hit a massive series with the Cubs and Brewers at Wrigley. Last series at Wrigley between those two teams, second to last series of the year between those two squads. It is 7-10 tonight. Woodruff takes on Darvish. Tough matchup tonight. Freddie Peralta on the hill tomorrow, 6-10. He's been lights out lately, and Adrian Hauser takes on Michael Walker, formerly of the Cardinals. 110 first pitch on Sunday. It's a big weekend, not just CC. Sheeter's back in town on Saturday. Ben Sheet's going to get inducted into the Wall of Honor. We've talked about this on the podcast before. That, to me, is one of the great what-if Brewer seasons. If Ben Sheets could stay healthy, which he had a lot of trouble with after the 2004 season when he should have won the Cy Young. 
If he stays healthy, that eases the burden on CC's shoulders, and he's probably not having to go out there every two to three days, which means he probably has more energy behind him once they get to the playoffs. And if you get in at that time, there wasn't really a wild card one game or now a three game. When you got in, you were right in the divisional round. You were right in the best of five. With Sheets healthy and CC healthy as your game one and game two starters, who knows what would have happened. He was, for many years, before he got hurt more and more and more, and we've talked about this, when you would look at the schedule in 2002, 2003, 2004, you'd look at those probable pitching matchups and you'd see some names on there. Well, I don't know. Glendon Rush going today. That's probably a loss. Ruben Cavedo tomorrow. That's probably a loss. Jimmy Haynes, maybe. Ben Sheets, we could win that game. That was it. He was the only guy in the five-man rotation for about three or four years there where you felt like, well, we have a chance to win. Of course, you get the 18 strikeout performance in 2004. His numbers in 2004 are banana land. If the team didn't stink on ice and he had a weird win-loss record, 12-14 and 14 that year, he probably should have won the Cy Young in 04. He rightfully goes into the Wall of Honor on Saturday. Yeah, it's a busy weekend. Big series. CC tonight, Friday, and Ben Sheets will be there on Saturday. I'm not sure if Ben's doing anything pre- or post-game. He'll be a part of the festivities, though, Saturday night. Meanwhile, the Cubs will keep on with their series in Pittsburgh over the weekend, and the Reds are in Arizona over the weekend. They lost in Arizona yesterday. Before we get to our Packer countdown, let's talk about Giannis. I'm sure people have seen this article, New York Times article. Giannis and his brothers have been everywhere this offseason. They were just in Nashville with the soccer club there. They're traveling internationally everywhere. They are everywhere. Carmen Santiago, everywhere. And at some point, a New York Times writer, I don't know who it was, caught up with Giannis. There's a long article on the New York Times if you want to read the entire thing. It, I mean, it is long. And a part of the conversation that you're seeing spread like wildfire on Twitter right now is the discussion about his future and what he's looking for in his future. Will he sign another extension to stay in Milwaukee and that kind of stuff? Giannis said, here's the quote. Let me just get the quote. Let's quote him. Quote, I would not be the best version of myself if I don't know that everybody's on the same page. Everybody's going for a championship. Everybody's going to sacrifice time away from their family like I do, Giannis said. And if I don't feel that, I'm not signing. That's the quote. So when you boil it down to a Twitter post, that's the quote because that's the quote that's going to generate clicks and comments and impressions, and that pays ad dollars. If I don't feel that, I'm not signing or I'm not signing. Just those three. I'm not signing. It gets people going. Bucks fans are freaking out on Twitter. Other NBA fans have jumped back into what they were doing in 2019 and 2020 and photoshopping Giannis in different team jerseys, and I'm just feeling like George Costanza. All right, let's just stay calm here. Don't get all crazy on me. Don't freak out on me, guys. This is not new information. He said all of the exact same stuff in 2020 and 2019 leading into that contract extension in the winter or November or December of 2020. He has been on record saying what he said in this article many times before. The man wants to win championships, plural. And that's what we want from him. What else would you want Giannis to say? Certainly as a Bucks fan, you don't love the idea of Giannis leaving. And I understand that scares Bucks fans, and we've got this once-in-a-lifetime precious thing. Don't let it go. And when he says things like that, it freaks you out a little bit. But what would you want your superstar player to say? You want this team to win multiple titles. You want your superstar player to want to win multiple titles. He also said in this New York Times article, the exact same article where I pulled that quote from, he said he would love to be like Kobe or like Dirk and play with the same team for the entirety of his career. But he said 
That's not the primary goal. The goal is to win titles, whatever that means. And if Milwaukee stays committed to winning titles and they're putting the proper talent around me and I feel like everybody's focused to win championships, I'm not going anywhere. I'm paraphrasing. That seems to be what he's saying. He said that leading into 2022. He talked about not wanting to be a part of a rebuild. Why would he want to be a part of a rebuild? We don't want that either. I don't know that he's going anywhere. First of all, he's in the middle of his contract. He has two years left on his current deal, and he has a player option after that. He could sign a Supermax extension this fall with a new head coach and an aging roster. I don't see any reason or any world why he would want to do that. He wants to see how this team works with Adrian Griffin. He wants to see how the chemistry works. He wants to see, ultimately, how they're going to freshen this roster up because, newsflash, this is an old roster. Giannis is 29. He's still at the beginning of his prime. Drew is 33. Middleton's going to be 33 at the beginning of the year. Brooke is 36 and just signed a contract extension. Hell, even Bobby Portis, I think, is 29. This is not a young team. And we were over this, I think, before the podcast, before the NBA draft. Some of the issues the Bucs have right now is that they have not been successful in the draft. They have not found quality talent in the first or second round for the most part where they've gotten young guys that are good and contributors on the cheap. They have had to go out and trade for guys like Drew Holiday and sign guys to max extensions because they have nobody behind them. They've got to get better in the draft. We have to hope and pray that Marjan Bochamp is something real, that he's a guy that can give you legitimate minutes and maybe be a starter and give you 18 points and seven rebounds and five assists per game. We really have to hope that he is going to be something and that they can find a way to cultivate more young talent out of this draft. When you look at the landscape and you look at this roster age, we said it when they hired Griffin. This is a two-year window with this roster, and it might be a one-year window. At best, it's a two-year window to win one more title with this core before they're going to have to find a way to trade picks or whatever or get draft picks and have them be successful to get younger talent around Giannis for the second part of his run. He said he wants to play 20 years. He's played 10. And we are at the tail end of the first half of his lifetime in the NBA. You still have a window this year. And depending on now what happens with James Harden, color me shocked that James Harden wants out of Philadelphia. This is so crazy, so out of character for him to out of nowhere demand a trade. If he leaves Philly, I don't know what Philly plugs that gap with. Maybe they get better without Harden. I don't know. Harden had a pretty good year last year, honestly, for what his age is. If he leaves Philly, we know Boston got Kristaps Porzingis. There's no reason this team isn't going to be a preseason top two, top three in the Eastern Conference and battling for a top-tier playoff spot. But what Giannis is doing is he is holding this franchise accountable. He is not letting them relax. He's putting their feet to the fire. This is the leverage that he has. Him saying, I may not be back if we're not in championship window, puts pressure on the ownership group and John Horst to spend the money, to think outside the box, to find ways to put new, young, fresh talent around him so that they're always in a championship window. There is no reason at any point during Giannis's career that he should have to sit through a rebuild. That's what he's saying. He does not want to do that. This is not new information. He's in the middle of a four-year extension. Let's not freak out, okay? Okay, ready? Break. <laughs> Good talk. I'll see you out there. You just knew as soon as I saw the headlines start to crop up last night on Twitter, I thought, oh, God, here we are again. I guess it has been three years. It doesn't feel like that long. Remember that whole 2020 year after the failure in the bubble and the pandemic and the Lumineers, all that stuff leading into that fall when the schedule didn't start until December. It was all of this stuff. It was all other fans of teams photoshopping him in their jersey. Come to Miami. Come to Golden State. We're already back. We are already back. And the man has two years left on his deal. Adrian Griffin has to work out, guys. Adrian Griffin has to work out. 
and I think he had a large role in hiring him. We wasn't that the rumor was that the reason they went with Adrian Griffin, who was kind of an outside the box hire, not somebody that anybody had as a front runner going into the process. The thinking was, or the rumor was, that that was Giannis's guy. Giannis sat down with a lot of those prospective candidates, and he, Griffin was the guy he liked. Now, that doesn't mean that he has to stay. There's a chance it doesn't work out, and Giannis may say after two years, well, I shouldn't be the guy picking head coaches. I guess I got that wrong. I don't know, though, that he said anything in that article. I didn't read the whole thing, but just picking apart that element of it, talking about his future and the next contract and where he wants to be. If I could summarize it, I'd say if Milwaukee is committed to putting a championship-level team on the floor, he's going to be in Milwaukee his entire career. That's the pressure that's on the Milwaukee front office. As fans, that's what we want. We want this team to compete for a title for the next decade. And Giannis is doing his best to make that happen. All right, let's talk about the Packers real quick, and then we'll get into our number five Packer-Bear game. Not a lot to go over. Sean Clifford is the official number two. That was announced by LaFleur yesterday or Wednesday, and then they did an interview with Clifford, I want to say, on Thursday. And the reporter talking to him said, hey, did you hear that you're the number two? He said, no, I hadn't, but that's nice. (laughs) That's a nice feather in my cap. Anders Carlson had a pretty good week. Matt LaFleur did say everybody who's available is going to play on Saturday, that noon kickoff against Seattle. It is just a random start time to me. I cannot recall a Saturday noon start time for a preseason game. Final preseason game, he said everybody's going to play. To me, that just means David Bakhtiari. Jordan Love will play a couple of series. Bakhtiari has sat out most of the preseason. I can't think of anybody else. Are there any other vets I'm not thinking of? You can respond to me in real time, right? And I can put it into this podcast if you can correct me. I can't think of anybody other than Bakhtiari, who is a veteran that has been sitting out or been on injury management or something like that, where they haven't been playing in the preseason games. That, to me, when LaFleur says everybody's going to play, that just to me means to me everybody that we've already seen playing this preseason will continue to, and David Bakhtiari will get some reps in. Noon kickoff at Lambeau Field on Saturday, which leads us to, let me make sure I get the right box score up here. Okay, we are doing, like we talked about a few weeks ago, we are going to do a personal countdown. My In my lifetime, I'm 39 years old, not 40, 39. In my lifetime, in my football viewing memory, because I'm sure some people, I'll get emails where people are going to say, well, how could you not put this game in there? How could you not put that game in there? One game in my lifetime that you probably could put in a top five list, I just wasn't aware of what football was. I wasn't aware of where my hand was. Well, I was five. I probably was aware of that, hopefully. It's the 1989 instant replay game with Mikowski, and that was at Lambeau Field, and at a time where the Packers weren't all that good. Or was it 88? Or was it 87? Might have been 87. I was alive. I know that. That's one where you could say, well, it was in your lifetime. I was born in 84. That is not going to be on my list. We are going to have a cutting floor. I think you know what number one's going to be. Everyone's number one, the greatest Packer-Bear game of all time. It's got to be the same, right? There's not going to be a huge (laughs) surprise or plot twist. What a twist coming up at number one. There are a few, though. I had a list of eight that I cut three off of to make my top five. When we do number one, we'll do a little quick thing on the other three that I did not put in there. My number five goes back to November 12th, 1995. And a game between the Packers and Bears. Well, the Bears were actually not bad that year. And it's late in the year. And both teams going into the game, the Packers are five and four and the Bears are six and three. Packers are a game back of first place heading into this game in November. First of all, the beginning of this game, I can't believe how good the footage was that I was able to find on YouTube for this game. Crystal clear HD, over an hour long, all the key plays. And that's where we got this audio from. Dick Stockton and Matt Millen on the call. Can I say something if we're in the trust tree? Are we in the nest? 
I still like and really liked Matt Millen as an analyst back in the day. I know he was a dumpster fire as a GM in Detroit, and that kind of hurt his football legacy. And I can understand if when he went back to being an analyst, you saw plenty of people saying, this guy's an analyst. We're supposed to take this guy's word seriously with what he did in Detroit. That's a fair criticism, ultimately. I still like him, though. I still like him on Big Ten football broadcasts, and I really enjoyed him. He was pretty fresh from his playing days in the early to mid-90s as the color analyst on Fox. That was the number two team at the time behind Madden and Summerall, Dick Stockton, and Matt Millen. That's who's on the call. The beginning of this game, though, the bird's eye view of pre-renovation Lambeau, I get they had to renovate Lambeau. They had to. Otherwise, would the team have left? Probably not. They had to, though. That had to be elevated to a top-tier stadium, and now it gets things like Paul McCartney concerts, and there's other uses for Lambeau than they had before. It was an absolute have to happen. But seeing pre-renovation Lambeau, just seeing that oval with just the green and the yellow Green Bay Packers on the front, it just hit me right in my heart. It was just a wave of nostalgia. They cut to the crowd. It's November Everybody's in blaze orange. Everybody's in the old school Packer gear. Starter jackets as far as the eye can see. Cheese bras and cheese heads. And it just seems like a simpler time. Nobody has a cell phone out. Nobody is watching this game through their cell phone. I don't want to be the old man yells at cloud. Everybody's looking at their cell phone nowadays. It did make me feel nostalgic, though, for that time period. The Packers are on the rise. Brett Favre's about to win his first MVP. Reggie White's in town. Neither of them were supposed to play in this game, by the way. They were both suffering from what seemed to be significant injuries. Both were on the field, and both played major factors in a Packer win. There was just something heartwarming about it. There was a light snow coming down at some point in the game. The Lambeau field was a little bit muddy and a little bit caked. It's just It brought back so many good memories for me when I was a kid, when I was 11 years old and this game happened, and watching games in the living room at my family's house in Sheboygan and all the great stuff that came with that and all the food and the tailgating you would kind of do at your house and high fives and after church watching the game. It just brought back a lot of good memories for me. This was the first game, not the first game, but the first big game that added to the, speaking of tall tales, the Brett Favre toughness tall tale. The week before, he suffered from what looked like a broken ankle. The week before, he had a severe sprain of his ankle. Remember this? And the rumors were all week that there was no way Favre was going to play. I forget what Reggie White's injury was. Reggie had those healing powers, though, where the guy could have a compound fracture on Sunday and be back at practice on Thursday. I don't know how he did it. He was also not supposed to play in this game. I forget what his injury was. Favre's was an ankle injury. All week long, not practicing, probably not going to play. We were at that point in his careers having a discussion about the consecutive games played. He was starting to build that up a bit where it was becoming a storyline every game. Another start made by Brett Favre. We thought, oh, that's probably going to be it for that. And it ends up that he's on the field. And not only is he on the field, but he has an all-time performance. NFL's different now where you see a lot of four or five touchdown games. You didn't see a lot of five touchdown passing games in 1995. Remember when Favre, it must be this year and the next year, where he had 38 touchdowns one year and 39 the next. That was unheard of. You had the record by, was it Marino back in the day, that ultimately who broke? Brady? And then Manning broke that maybe? These were numbers that you didn't see a lot, especially a five-touchdown game. Packers were down 7 nothing. Eric Kramer was the quarterback for the Bears. He hit Curtis Conway, remember him, for a 20-yard touchdown pass. The first of five, Brett Favre to Edgar Bennett on a fall November Sunday in a little bit of mud. Nobody better than Edgar Bennett. Oh, 
first down on the 17. Minter and Minifield, the nickel in there for the Bears. Barb gets some time and screen pass to Edgar Bennett, and he may score, and Bennett is in for a touchdown. What a courageous drive by the Green Bay Packers and their injured quarterback, Brett Favre. That tied the game at seven. They grab a lead in the second quarter. Here's Favre to Robert Brooks. Jump into the stands. Four wide receivers, including Terry Mickens. Favre with a short drop. Pass is caught by Brooks, and he's going to score in the Packers' lead. If you have a chance to track down the YouTube video I'm talking about, I forget about the elite speed that Robert Brooks had. His career was never the same after he hurt himself early the next year, the Super Bowl year, early in the year, right? Week two or three where he suffered, was it an Achilles or an ACL? He did come back and have a productive season or two. This is pre-injury prime Brooks, though, where after Sharp left the team because of his career-ending injury, Brooks that year had a fabulous year, and that touchdown pass, he makes a cut back toward the middle of the field, and he's gone. He is so fast. That gave the Packers a 14-7 lead. Game tied at 14. Touchdown pass number three. Brett Favre to Dorsey Levins. One yard. It'll be first and goal at the one. There's a toss to Levins. Touchdown Packers. Dorsey. He would just factor into games. This was before his full-on renaissance, too. He was a factor. It wasn't until the next year where he got more carries, more screen plays. Remember how big Dorsey was in the screen game back in the 90s? Got that one-yard touchdown pass. Packers up 21-14. Another Kramer to Conway touchdown pass tied the game. Rashawn Salam, a one-yard touchdown run. Late third quarter, put the Bears up by a touchdown. Then Favre to Brooks again tied the game. Short field for Brett Favre as he starts from the Bear 44-yard line. Here comes the blitz. It's picked up and back is Brooks. And Brooks is going to score. And the Packers may tie it again. This is unbelievable. Chris Jackie with the extra point with that flowing mane of hair. What was the rumor about Jackie? Was it Holmgren's daughter? <laughs> there was a rumor that something was happening there between Chris Jackie and Mike Holmgren's, I think, adult daughter at the time, 19 years old or 20 years old. He hits the extra point. That ties the game at 28. Late in the game, touchdown pass number five. Favre to Edgar Bennett again. It's out on third down and 10. Packers in field goal range. Reverse to Bennett on the screenplay. Five yards. Touchdown, Green Bay. Edgar Bennett. I recall watching this game and thinking, oh, my God, he wasn't supposed to play. And he threw five touchdown passes. One of those memorable far performances. The Bears do end up driving late in this game. They are inside the Packer 25-yard line with two seconds left. Kramer airmails this pass over the middle. Listen to the roar of the crowd at the end of this. The game is right here. Two seconds remaining. Kramer's pass. know if it's the acoustics if it's the way the game is produced Lambo has taken a lot of criticism recently about how everybody's always telling you to sit down if you stand up for a big play I get you can't be standing the entire game in big moments though if people are standing don't tell them to sit down okay all right Lambo has taken some heat though now because it's a little bit of an older crowd and it's not as loud and it doesn't put pressure on the opposing teams because it doesn't have that loudness to it 
that sounds so loud. But, you know, maybe at that time it was people more in their 20s or 30s that were going to the games as the resurgence in the franchise was going on. That stunned me, though. At the end of that final play, the wave of noise you hear in that big moment as the Packers win 35-28. Both teams are 6-4 and four coming out of it. When I think back to the Favre era, though, and one of those games that just added to the toughness lore of Brett Favre, that was one of them where he had probably five or six of those in his career. He suffers an injury the week before. It looks like he's dead to rights and the streak is done, and then he comes out. That was one of the first ones I can remember, though, where it was all week. There was no chance he was going to play. And not only does he play, but he has a historic performance at the time, a five-touchdown pass game for a Packer quarterback. Packers win 35-28. to That is my number five, five favorite Packer-Bear matchups. We will do number four coming up on Monday. We'll also recap the Brewers and Padres. We'll talk a little bit if there's any news from the CC situation coming out of the weekend or recap any of the videos. Maybe they play a Ben Sheets, whatever. We'll get to that, and we'll set up a crucial series on Monday's podcast. That night will be game one of three of Brewers and Cubs at Wrigley Field. Have a happy, safe weekend. We will chat with you Monday. 